This is part of a two-tape talk by Joel titled Practices of the Night, Part 2, Meditation and Dreams, recorded April 26, 1998 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So today I'm going to give the second part of a two-part talk here on Practices of the Night. And last Sunday we talked about the spiritual interpretation of dreams. And this practice focuses on the meaning of dreams as they're expressed in their own peculiar dramatic and symbolic language. And if you can learn that language and you pay attention to your dreams, you can get tremendously valuable guidance on your path. And we talked about some of the forms that guidance can take last Sunday. So this morning, though, I want to talk about meditation in the dream state and other related practices. So the big difference here is that the interpretation of dreams is something you do in the waking state, after the fact. You have a dream at night or several dreams, you wake up, you write them down, and you uh, mull them over, you ponder them and you try to see what they mean, what they have to tell you. But a dream meditation and these practices are something you do actually in the dream state. You do during sleep. You do the actual practices. So one of the uh, obvious benefits of being able to practice at night is that it increases your opportunities for spiritual practice by about a third given that we spend about a third of our lives sleeping. So uh, if you're able to practice at night, you just have a third more time to do spiritual practice. For example, if you are practicing precepts diligently and you're making a real effort to practice them in your waking life, very often the precepts will spontaneously come to mind in the middle of a dream. You might not even be dreaming lucidly or anything, but there you'll be in the middle of a dream and the precept will occur to you in a, in a situation that, uh, where the precept is called for. And one example of this uh, happened to one of our practitioners, Todd Corbett, and I asked him the other day if he would mind if I related his dream, and he said, no, no, go ahead. I think I alluded to this in our last Sunday's talk. Uh, but this is really a good example of a precept popping up in a dream. He was having a dream where he was trying to collect water outside of this little sort of camp area. There were some people camped and tents and so forth. And the water was difficult to come by. He was digging in the ground and he was just coming up with little cupfuls and so forth. And this uh, tyrant sort of character marched out in a military uniform. He said he looked like Saddam Hussein and tried to take the water away from him or took it away or whatever, but was threatening him. So Todd ran off and uh, hit his water, or he lost it, I'm not sure which. But then he, he waited until this character disappeared, and they came back, and he started trying to find more water, and the character appeared again. And one part of him thought, well, I should really confront this guy. But he was too frightened. So instead, he got down on his hands and knees, and he started bowing to this Saddam Hussein character. And in that moment, the precept of honesty came to mind. 
not to deceive himself or others. And he realized this was deceptive. He, this is not the way he felt. This was just an act he was putting on out of fear. And as he became aware of this and stopped bowing and rose up to confront this character, the character shrunk into this little kid with a stick gun, like a play, you know, thing, just a stick, and got very frightened and ran off. Now, this is interesting because what happened here has two aspects. There's the symbolic meaning that you later can look at the dream and uh, interpret, and that is that he's trying to uh, trying to connect with spiritual life. Water is always a symbol of spiritual life, of the unconscious, and so forth. And there's this obstacle represented by the Saddam Hussein character. And then there's the empirical lesson that he learns right on the spot. And that is that honesty overcomes obstacles to uncovering spiritual life. And by extension, all the precepts. So if you have the courage to be honest, you immediately dispel some obstacle. So do you see what I mean by there's an empirical lesson right there in the moment? He gets to see, acted out, what happens when you act on a precept. Also, if you are a meditator in waking life, and this is rare, but sometimes you can remember to meditate in the dream. So let's say, I don't know, you do a mantra practice, and maybe you practice half an hour a day. Well, if you can remember to meditate at night in dreams, you could double your meditation time in a 24-hour period. If you're having trouble finding time to do your practice, in fact, maybe you could triple it or quadruple it. You know, there's not as, uh, usually not as uh, pressing stuff going on in dreams, although sometimes we feel that they're just as pressing as our daytime activities. So those are some of the benefits you can get just from, do, just from the fact that you're able to do spiritual practice at night in dreams during sleep. But there are more profound benefits. And one of them comes from cultivating the ability to meditate on the dream phenomena themselves. In other words, you're not uh, focusing on the meaning of the dream, the symbolic meaning, you're focusing on the essential nature of what is appearing within the dream. So let's say, let's go back to Todd's example. Let's say uh, Todd had found himself in this situation. Then at any stage of the dream, he could have stopped and he could have meditated on what is the essential nature of this character appearing to me? What kind of reality does it have? It's really sort of question you're asking. Here's how the Tibetan Buddhist Namakai Norbu uh, <coughs> explains uh, this practice and particularly why it's so important. In a real sense, all the visions that we see in our lifetime are like a big dream. If we examine them well, the big dream of life and the smaller dreams of one night are not very different. If we truly see the essential nature of both, we will see that there really is no difference between them. If we can finally liberate ourselves from the chains of emotions, attachments, and ego by this realization, then we have the possibility of ultimately becoming enlightened. 
So this is a fairly direct path to enlightenment. Now, this claim that essentially dreams and waking life are the same uh, is found in all traditions. Some people think, oh, well, this is just a, an Eastern thing. It's just a Buddhist or maybe a Hindu thing. But it's really found in all traditions. For instance, the great Hindu sage Shankara writes, In dream, the mind creates by its own power a complete universe of subject and object. The waking state is only a prolonged dream. The phenomenal universe exists in the mind. So he's saying right now, this waking state is essentially no different from the dream in the sense that it is all created by the mind. That does not mean, by the way, that your ego mind can suddenly change things around here. You could, uh, you know, manifest a Cadillac out in the driveway or something. The mind here is a much larger mind than just the little ego mind. Last week we talked about different levels of the psyche uh, dropping down even to the collective unconscious. And so this, this uh, waking state is uh, largely controlled by the laws of the collective unconscious, if you like, and that means that's why the ego can't just flip things around. Here's what the great Kabbalist Abraham Abu Lafi wrote, and the Kabbalists are the mystics of the Jewish tradition. All is like a dream which passes by in the night, which when the sleeper awakes from it, thus he shall find it. And even when he looks at the day past, he will see that all his days are like a passing shadow. Now, if we think about that for a moment, where did yesterday go? It's, it's like a dream, isn't it? I mean, where did the dream of last night go? Where did yesterday go? It's just all dissolved away into consciousness. Here's what uh, a Christian mystic of this century, Simone Weil, said. She said, we live in a world of unreality and dreams. And finally, the great Sufi Ibn Arabi wrote, everything a man sees in this life is of the same kind as that which one sleeping sees. So this claim that essentially there's no difference between our dream experience and our waking experience is universal in all mystical traditions. And these statements don't come just from some abstruse philosophical reasoning. They're not just some sort of a product, some academic philosophy where people are sitting around debating about reality. They come from a direct realization of the essential nature of experience, of appearances, of forms, in whatever state they're yeah. arising. And this realization radically alters the nature of our experience. And you can see why, because this uh, experience of all forms being of the nature of a dream is radically different than the way we normally experience things, isn't it? Normally, we experience the waking world as somehow real, and the dream world is unreal, imaginary or something. We think of them as, in our normal state of mind, as being totally different. But let's examine this more closely and see what we mean by these things. What do we mean when we say the waking world is real and the dream world is unreal? 
Anybody got any notions about that? What is the difference? Why do we think there's a difference? Well, yeah. For me, I think I have a sense of reality that uh, it's verified by what I perceive to be other people in the room. Like that wall physically does exist and we can talk about it collectively. So I, I perceive that to be real in a very hard materialistic sense. Whereas a dream is mine and mine alone. And it would not be, other people aren't in there. I mean, would not share the same view or have the same understanding of what I'm... Oh, really? When you're dreaming, you don't have other people in a dream that share the same assumptions about the dream wall as you do oh, in the dream? I think it's the knowledge that when I awake, people would say, oh, that's a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> you have that in the dream? No, no. It's, it's a... Right now, since I'm speaking right. from a... Waking state. Well, more or less. Waking <laughs> state. <laughs> I, I view the dream in this way. From, from this vantage point, right. I view this is real, and I... I view the dream the way I just described as my own imagination that's not verified <coughs> by anybody else here. They don't even see it. They don't know about it. But when we're dreaming, we think it's re as real as us sitting in this room. Yeah. Now. So how do you know that you're not dreaming now? Right. Yes. Um, because I was taught that this is real and that's not real, and I believe them. Ah, <laughs> very good. Very good. You're brainwashed, in other words. Totally. <laughs> Dogma, it's called. How much do we accept on just on the fact we're just brought up that way and taught that way, and so we just accept it. Even those of us who pride ourselves on being uh, free thinkers or you know individual thinkers, examining our experience closely, examining ideas, we don't accept anything on authority. But it's amazing when we look into it what we do accept on authority. So that's that's a good reason. But now, if we look into it now, is there some reason why? Uh, we should accept this. There's the consistency of it. Every waking state appears the same, whereas every dream state doesn't. I mean, every night dreams are different, but every day the wall looks the same. Well, that's interesting. If you if you watch very closely, you see that uh, this waking state is just as impermanent as a dream state. Now, granted, there appears to be, especially from the waking state point of view, uh, more consistency. There are slightly different laws govern the states in that sense. Mm -hmm. But it's, dreams are not without their laws. It's a different set of laws. You see what I mean? So that doesn't tell us necessarily why one would be more real than another. That might tell us why one is more rigid than another or something like that. One of the things... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, what do you mean by the dream state has its own set of laws? Could you... <laughs> well, if you start interpreting dreams, you see they follow a dramatic structure. They're not just chaos. Now, they can appear very chaotic, but if you dig into them, and uh, if you dig into them in depth, you'll find that they, there's a reason why the dream has uh, what's in it. In it. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. For instance, and uh, let me digress for a moment. This is important in dream interpretation. Uh, if you have a dream and you're passing by, you're walking down a trail, and you pass by a blueberry bush. And that might be a very insignificant little detail in the dream. And there's nothing to do with what's going on in the rest of the dream. The fact that the dream put a blueberry bush there, rather than a raspberry bush, is important. It's worth looking into. Now, you won't always find an answer if you're doing 
strictly spiritual interpretation of dreams is not necessary. Necessary, But if, for instance, if you were in depth analysis, you might very well find an answer why it was a blueberry bush and not a raspberry bush, let's say. But dreams, you can think of them as works of art. The artist does not put anything in there just at random. Everything in there is for a reason. So they, that's what I mean by they have their own laws, their own structure, but it's very different. It's a dramatic structure. It's symbolic language. And in that sense, it's very different than uh, at least the way we experience waking life. However, you can start to interpret waking life and see that actually waking life underneath also has this kind of structure. But this is uh, what you brought up before, I think, is perhaps one of the main ways we think of the difference. In a dream, when we see things in a dream, we realize that they are created out of pure awareness, pure consciousness, imagination. When Todd saw this character, Saddam Hussein, we don't imagine that there is an objectively existing Saddam Hussein, which is off someplace, which he could go back tonight and visit again. He could dream about Saddam Hussein again, but we normally don't think of there's a world out there with a campground with Saddam Hussein in it. But we do believe that about our waking experience. Mm-hmm. That it, it reflects somehow some something that exists apart from consciousness. That all of your houses or apartments or whatever still are standing out there in some other world, even though they're not appearing in consciousness right now. Is that, is that the way most of you perceive the difference, or one of the major differences anyway? <clears throat> Let me make another quick little digression, because this is not what modern physics tells us at all. And I'm not going to go off into that, but quantum mechanics tells us, no, actually, your house does not exist out there in some physical time and space when you're not observing it. But most of us don't really believe quantum physics because we've been so brainwashed into this reality. Let's do a quick little experiment for a moment. First, look around at all the forms here. Now close your eyes. Now notice they've all vanished, those visual forms, right? Now, what's the difference between the way they appeared in consciousness and vanished and the way dream forms appear in consciousness and vanish? How about sound forms? The way they appear. I I hear a refrigerator now. Does anybody else hear that refrigerator? Or... I hear my own voice. You hear my voice. What about in a dream? Do we hear sounds in dreams? What's the difference between dream sounds and waking sounds? Has anybody heard music in their dreams? Anybody ever dream music? Hear music in your dreams? That lot of you? It's quite startling to me because I am tone deaf and a musical dummy. And, but I have, on occasion, heard vast symphonies. I've never studied music. And this is not any music that I recognize. 
it's and and it's perfect. What is it now? Digital sound. They have this, you know, <laughs> the CD. There's no distortion whatsoever. It's better in some ways than live music in a waking state. Just pure music or sensations in a dream. Has anybody had real tactile sensations in a dream? So. Just in terms of the, the immediate experience, what's the difference? These sensations, sounds, sights arise and pass away just the way they do in a waking state. So this is why mystics claim, ultimately, if we investigate this, don't just take it for granted, but investigate, we will see that there's essentially no difference in the nature of the appearances that arise in a dream state or a waking state. And we can, uh, we can use an analogy for this. If you imagine uh, going to the movies and you're sitting there and there's a movie. And within this movie, there are dream sequences. Everybody's seen a movie where there are dream sequences. And when they want to portray a dream sequence, the director and the cameraman, they do start mm -hmm. doing funny things. You know what I mean? They do quick uh, time uh, cuts, jump cuts, and they'll use distorted uh, camera lenses to give you uh, weird angles and so forth that make play some spooky music. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so you can recognize when you're watching this movie, oh, this is a dream sequence, and then the dream sequence is over and it goes back to the regular movie, and you can say, well, this is a waking state sequence. You can distinguish between them, but ultimately... What's on the screen is all of the same nature. They're all forms, light forms, projected onto the screen. And they're all made of light, if we like to put it that way. So even though we can distinguish waking sequences from dream sequences, which we can do in, in our everyday lives, we still... Uh, want to investigate what this what the mystics claim is that ultimately they're all like this movie they are all have the same essential nature they're all made of and a mystic might say made of consciousness <clears throat> made of god is another way to put it they don't have some other reality apart from what is actually going on when we believe, not that things are appearing, this is very important, things are appearing is obvious to everybody, including mystics, but when we believe that there's an objective reality behind them, that is our delusion from a mystic's point of view, and that is the cause of our suffering. We believe we can possess them, grab them, hold on to them, and really they're, they're empty. That's what the Buddhist term means. There's no substance in them. Here's what Meister Eckhart said. He's a Christian, not a Buddhist. All things are created from nothing. Therefore, their true origin is nothing. And so far as this noble will inclines toward created things, it flows off with created things toward their nothing. In other words, we invest these appearances with more reality than they have. 
And insofar as we're always trying to grab them and possess them and so forth, we're missing this fact that ultimately underneath they're empty. They're just light forms, if you like. And so our, our will is really trying to grasp at nothing. No, no wonder we end up frustrated and unhappy and disappointed. All this stuff is just always dissolving away underneath us. So dispelling the delusion about the nature of our experience is what ends the suffering. In almost exactly the way that when you have a nightmare and, you know, the hatchet man's running after you, and there's tremendous suffering in that situation, fear and whatnot, because why? You think it's real. You think something really is happening here. And you wake up and you say, oh, thank God it was only a dream. The waking up and realizing the true nature of what you were experiencing dispels the suffering, doesn't it? And this is why one of the great metaphors for enlightenment is waking up. To awaken, to awaken to the true nature of our experience. And when we awaken to the true nature of our experience, that is what dispels the suffering. Because now we see that there is nothing actually substantial underneath it. This is why the Buddha said, the disciple must get into the habit of looking at things truthfully. He must recognize the fact that the world has no self-nature, that it is unborn, that is like a passing cloud, like the moon reflected in the ocean, like a vision, a mirage, a dream. How can we break the habit that we are brought up with and start to see things truthfully? This is what the Buddhas, uh, Buddhists mean when they say all phenomena are empty. This is one of the most misunderstood concepts uh, in the great traditions in our culture today. It's even misunderstood, by the way, in the, in the Buddhist cultures. When they talk about emptiness, they're not talking about some uh, great big physical vacuum. They're talking about the fact that the objects around us are empty of in, any inherent, substantial, objective existence, just the way dream objects are empty of any objective existence. Does everybody get that? This is going to be important, you'll see, because we're going to talk about the value of meditating on dream phenomena. Uh, and again, this is not just a Buddhist idea. Here's the great Sufi poet, Rumi. He writes, The eye that has appeared from non-existence sees the essence of existence to be non-existent. The eye that has appeared from non-existence. Awareness just awareness. It didn't appear from any existing thing. And it sees the essence of everything that exists to be non-existent. That's, 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 uh, the Buddha could have said that. The same, you see, from culture to culture, tradition to tradition. That's why we say the mystics are all pointing to the same truth in quite precise detail. So now the big question is, how can we recognize this? How can we recognize this essential nature of our, our phenomena? Whether we're waking or dreaming, by the way, because we don't recognize it normally when we're dreaming either. Just like you said, when we're dreaming, we're making the same assumptions about the dream world as we make about the waking world when we're awake. And 
uh, it's very difficult in the waking state and also in the dream state. But if you could become a lucid in the dream state and you could meditate on whatever phenomenon was appearing there, you would have a direct realization of this emptiness of appearances. To go back to the analogy of the nightmare, if you woke up in the middle of the nightmare, woke up meaning becoming lucid in the nightmare, not waking up out of the dream and looking back on it saying, oh, thank God it was just a dream. If you could wake up in the dream and say, wow, this is a dream. With all the vividness of everything that was happening, you would experience directly emptiness, what the Buddhist, what Rumi is talking about. You would walk through this landscape and you would say, wow, this is incredible. This is all empty. It's not that it isn't appearing. It might be very, very vivid. It might be more vivid than your waking experience. I've had dreams that have been more vivid, more real than the waking experience. When I woke up, I felt like I came down, you know, to some murky, murkier world. And yet, there's nothing behind it. It's just made of consciousness. Here's what Namakai Norbu says about this. One must constantly carry one's awareness into the dreams. As we develop our awareness of the dream nature, we may use dreams to deepen our meditative awareness. For example, if while dreaming, you are not only aware of dreaming, but also conscious that all vision is an illusion, you penetrate to the void at its heart. Thus a dream can be transformed into knowledge of emptiness. So by meditating on dream objects, you can have this direct experience of the emptiness of phenomena, as the Buddhists put it. And then, when you wake up, it'll be much easier for you to meditate on waking phenomena. You already know what emptiness is like. Do you see what I mean? And now when you start to meditate and do a meditation on emptiness in waking life, you know what you're looking for, so to speak. So that is a very, uh, a very great benefit of being able to meditate in the dream state itself and take the objects that appear in the dream and meditate on their essential nature directly. But now there's even a more profound benefit from being able to do night practices. And this comes from the ability to, if we like, meditate during dreamless sleep. So far we've been talking about meditating in the dream state. But now we're talking about meditating when there are no dreams appearing. No forms whatsoever appearing. Waking forms or dream forms. And the reason this is important is because... According to the mystics, not only are all objects out there empty of any inherent existence, but the self that you believe you are is empty of any inherent existence. The subject to consciousness, the one that you believe you are anyway, doesn't have any true existence. It is also empty. And this is crucial because enlightenment, full Gnostic awakening, involves this, if we like, double realization. It's not necessarily a one-two thing. It happens all at once. But that 
All forms, including the forms you believe to be yourself, are all empty of inherent existence. This is why enlightenment, for instance, instantly dispels the fear of death. If you don't inherently exist as some entity, some finite being or whatever, then you can't die. If you are instead consciousness itself, or as other mystics have put it, you are actually that divine awareness, I and the Father am one, Jesus said, then all these forms arise and dissolve continually, but they don't affect you. They don't affect consciousness. Consciousness never arises or dissolves. It's always there. It's the fundamental underlying ground of everything. So what if this particular form arises and dissolves? In fact, this form arises and dissolves uh, a number of times during the day. In fact, if you look at it really closely, it's arising and dissolving all the time. Anything you think that you are, you think you're your thoughts, poop, 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 they're arising and dissolving. You think you're your body, you look closely, it's all a bunch of sensations arising and dissolving. Your emotions... They're like smoke. Everything that you think you are is arising, dissolving all the time. The only thing that remains is this consciousness. And in dreamless sleep, that's all there is, this consciousness. It's what uh, Longchenpa, another great Tibetan Buddhist, says. As both self and its objects do not really exist, samsara has never been truly experienced as being existent. Samsara is, in case you don't know, the Buddhist and Hindu word for this world of delusion that we live in. It's not, the, it's not that there aren't appearances, but our investing these appearances with a reality they don't have. That is what creates samsara. That is what samsara is. So he says, since both the self and objects don't exist, samsara doesn't really exist. By realizing that it is a deceptive appearance and by nature not really existent, you become liberated from it. Just the way you would become liberated from a nightmare if you realize, oh, this is just a dream, in the dream. Now, interestingly, every single night, this emptiness of self stands revealed to us in dreamless sleep. Every single night, there's this experience. All forms drop away, and there's nothing but consciousness. Pure consciousness. This is what the Upanishads, the great Hindu classics of mysticism, say. In dreamless sleep, the self becomes transparent like water. This is the ocean of Brahman, no king. This is the supreme path, the highest attainment, the greatest bliss. That's beautifully put. The self becomes transparent like water. In dreamless sleep, the, the solidity uh, that you feel yourself to be, just you see right through it. Or we see, now we have to be careful about language. You don't see right through it. It is seen right through. So, in many traditions, not just uh, Buddhism or Hinduism, you'll find this teaching that Dreamless sleep presents a golden opportunity for awakening, for enlightenment. Here's what the Christian Saint Anthony the Great said. When you go to bed at night with a contented mind, recall the blessings and generous providence of God. 
Be filled with happy thoughts and great joy. Then while your body sleeps, your soul will keep watch. The closing of your eyes will bring you a true vision of God. And in Christian tradition, the vision of God is what liberates you from sin. It's not a vision of God, big daddy in the sky. It's a direct uh, realization of what God is. And as Augustine said, God is not a being. God is being. Beingness. Not some a being someplace. And here's Namakai Norbu again. He says, That which is called the state of natural light is not a moment or a state in which the mind is functioning. It is the period beginning when you fall asleep and ending when the mind begins to function again. It has always been considered that it is during this period that the practitioner of Tantra realizes him or herself. So there's a moment when you fall asleep, when the mind ceases to function, because it ceases to produce the waking state, and before it starts to function again, it starts to produce dreams. There's this period of dreamless sleep. And of course, during the night, dreams will dissolve, and then there'll be nothing but dreamless sleep, and the dreams will arise again. And of course, this was precisely the moment of my own gnosis. And as I, if you read my book, you know that these, this uh, old Hindu verse came to mind right at this moment. It says, at the point of sleep, when sleep has not yet come, an external wake, wakefulness vanishes, being is revealed. And I happened to be at that point, and uh, because of practice, it wasn't just spontaneous, my mind was not functioning at all. I'd come to the end of anything I could think of to do, so my mind was very clear. And this, vo- this verse just popped into my head, and I looked. And sure enough, it was true. <laughs> so, this is not... Uh, what you, when this happened to me, you know, I thought this was just the most uh, unusual thing in the world. And it wasn't until I started reading other mystics that said, oh, well, you know, this isn't so unusual. In fact, nothing on my path I found out was unusual. <laughs> Originally, I thought this was just, you know, spectacularly unique. Who could understand or uh, have any, relate to any of this? Really, everything that happened to me has happened to other people. Now, there's the same problem in these two kinds of meditation. Meditating on the dream objects in the dream or being able to meditate during dreamless sleep. They have one problem in common. There's normally no acidity in those states. You don't know you're dreaming when you're dreaming, and you certainly don't know you're in dreamless sleep when dreamless sleep is there. In fact, normally, we read dreamless sleep as a state of unconsciousness because there are no objects arising, and there's nothing there. In, in, a, in, a, in terms of objects, there is nothing there. So our minds aren't trained to pay attention to nothing, so they just close down, if you like. It seems to us to be unconscious. So both these practices of the night, meditating on objects in the dream and also on dreamless sleep, require the ability to cultivate lucidity during sleep, during the whole course of the night. And then the big question is then how to do this. So I'm going to give you some specific sorts of instructions here. Uh, Most of these come from the Tibetan tradition because, as far as I know, the Tibetans have the most detailed and comprehensive 
practices to make you able to do this. I said there are references to this in other traditions, but I've never found a systematic way of doing this practice, except in the Tibetan tradition. So, but before I get into this, I want to give you a warning. These practices are hard to do, especially for a householder, when your mind is full of other things all day long. If you were on a three-year retreat, I think it'd be much easier. They're hard to do as a householder, and even though if you're on retreat, they're, they're not easy to do, they take time, they take a real commitment, uh, they take patience and perseverance. So if you go out and try these practices for one or two nights and nothing happens, you say, oh, well, this doesn't work, uh, you're shortchanging yourself. I must say, that I say they are hard to do, and not everyone's going to be able to do them at this time or a particular time in your life, particularly if your life is very busy, so don't feel guilty or anything about it. But if you do decide you want to try these practices, just bear that in mind. You're going to have to stick with this for a period of time. Okay, so the first practice, uh, this comes from the Tibetan tradition. The first thing to do, and by the way, whatever practice you're doing, and one of the most important things to do is as you're falling asleep, just make a strong resolve that you are going to become lucid in your dreams. I'm going to wake up. When I'm dreaming, I'm going to become aware that I'm dreaming. This just really is, it takes just planting the seed in your mind that this is what you want to do. That sometimes, by the way, is just enough. But anyway, you, there's more you can do here. Then as you're falling asleep, you make the strong resolve and you visualize a white A, the letter A, in the center of your body, accompanied by a silent ah sound in the heart. And if you have trouble visualizing, the ah sound will be enough. This comes from the Tibetan tradition. I don't know why it has to be a white A. And in fact, uh, I, it probably doesn't have to be a white A, but I'm always a believer in starting with what is known and time-tested. If it doesn't work for you, then it's worth experimenting and finding something that will work for you. But since these Tibetans have been doing this for several thousand years, you know, stuck up there in the Himalayas, and they found this works well, um, I think it's a, a, it's a good place to begin. And when you uh, are visualizing this white A, you have to be careful not to concentrate on it on too much, not to hold it too tightly in attention, otherwise you'll never get to sleep, but not to be too loose. So this is going to take some experiment. If your attention is too lax, you're just going to fall into your normal sleep. If it's too tight, you'll be sitting there trying to go, waiting for sleep to come, and all there'll be is this great white A, you know. So you have to play with that a little bit and find just the right amount of effort you need for this concentration. You can think of this as a sort of a, the white A is like a life preserver that you kind of hang on to, and it carries you from one state to another. All you have to do is just hold on to it. Normally, when we go from one state to another, we sort of drop out. This will keep you on the surface, so to speak. So if you just uh, focused on this, the waking world will all dissolve away, and there'll be just nothing but a white A, and then dreams will arise and whatnot, and you will have not lost this continuity of awareness through that process. If you actually do this practice, what most people find is it, it's not quite that simple, or it doesn't unfold that simply. The first thing that happens is they will lose consciousness as they go to sleep, but they, they might start becoming lucid for moments in their dream. 
at night. So it, the practice unfolds in little bits and pieces, usually, for most people. Uh, something that I found was very effective is, as you're falling asleep, to put your attention on this sort of black screen inside your forehead. It's like if you close your eyes and you sort of direct your attention up to your forehead, there's sort of like a just a black screen. Maybe with some, you might see some light dots or whatever there. And if you can hold your attention on that, you will find that the rest of this world will pass out of uh, consciousness and images will start to appear, the beginning of dreams. Quite vivid, and sometimes they'll start to appear maybe just a flash. You'll know that they're dream Im images and not your imagination, not your fantasy, because they'll have an autonomous quality about them. Do you know what I mean? It's like somebody uh, flashed uh, uh, something from a projector on there. And you go, oh, what was that? And if you can stay with that, they will start to coalesce into dreams and will, again, have not lost consciousness. You will now lose it as that's unfolding. And then here's uh, finally a tip from the Hindu tradition. And this is uh, Swami Hari Har Ananda Aranyana. Aranya, I'm sorry. Har I won't try to say it again. <laughs> In deep, dreamless sleep, both external and mental objects are obscured by tamasa. Tamasa is uh, this heavy, sluggish feeling or quality in the, in the Hindu tradition. There are three fundamental qualities out of which all of life is made. And the tamasa quality is that just sluggish, heavy sort of feeling that you feel when you're really tired. So he says... Uh, in a deep, dreamless sleep, both external and mental objects are obscured by tamasa feeling, and a hazy idea of inactivity remains. Taking that inactive feeling as the object of contemplation, this method is practiced. In other words, when you're falling asleep and you feel that heavy sleep kind of sensation, you can take that itself, that feeling, as the object of meditation. And then instead of, in a certain sense, sort of being buried under it, that becomes your life preserver that just carries you through. You remain lucid with that instead of just being swamped by it. So those are three ways you might uh, try to uh, cultivate lucidity uh, in the dream and in dreamless sleep states. Now, let me uh, finally give you some tips here for what to do if you do become lucid in your dreams or in dreamless sleep. If you become lucid in a dream, the first thing you should do is try to make the phenomena around you more vivid, more realistic. I'll give you one example. I had a dream once where I was traveling with this student and the student uh, and I were passing through these landscapes where all this terrible tragedy was going on. We went through a tunnel and there had been this car wreck and there are people injured and killed, and then we come out, and there's uh, a scene from uh, the aftermath of a battle. You know that um, movie Gone with the Wind, that famous shot where all the wounded are laid out on the street, and the camera pulls back, and you see they're just laid out for miles. It was a scene like that. And the student uh, was just horrified by all this, and I, every time we passed through one of these, I kept trying to say, well, don't you understand? It's just a dream. And he he was making the same error we were talking about before. No, he took this to be reality. And finally, uh, we got to the end of this field with all these bodies. 
And I had this jacket on, which I have in Waking Life, and that's uh, not true satin, but it's one of those fake satin jackets, you know, black kind of satin things. And I, I was carrying it, so I handed it to him because I could feel how uh, vivid that sensation of that material was in my fingertips. And I said, now feel this. And so he did. And I said, now it really feels real, doesn't it? And he said, yes. I said, but you see, we are in a dream. This is the nature of dreams. I mean, they can be tremendously vivid. Well, he didn't get it. And he said, well, now what are we doing? I said, well, we'll keep going until you wake up. <laughs> but you can do that if you become lucid. Whatever is around you, try to make it more vivid. Start exploring, in other words, right? And then after you've been meditating on the phenomena that are appearing for a while, making them vivid and realizing, you're just, you know, there's no work to this meditation. It's just realizing, oh, this is dream. Wow, this is a dream. This is fantastic. Look how real this looks, and yet it's a dream. Afterwards, then try to let the dream dissolve. And it will dissolve away into dreamless sleep. Now, before you get actually a dreamless sleep, though, you want to try to stay right on the edge. Let the dream dissolve away and maybe go back into it and stay right at that point. Because that's where all this phenomenon becomes most transparent. You, you can, when you play in this area, you can see how totally insubstantial all these appearances are. Because they're just about to dissolve away into nothing and come back out of it. On our last retreat, most of you know that Andrea had a Gnostic awakening. There was another woman on the retreat, however, whose name was Anne. She wasn't really part of our group. She was the uh, part of the staff at the retreat center at Cloud Mountain. And she was sitting in on our retreats. And she started having these Gnostic episodes as well. And hers came from following these instructions which I gave on the retreat. And she very rapidly became lucid in her dreams. And she was uh, playing on this uh, edge of a dream and, and dreamless sleep. And at that moment, a train whistle from a waking state pierced through. And she heard the train whistle, and there was the dream just hovering there and dreamless sleep. And she realized the emptiness of everything. The train whistle was empty. The dream was empty. It was all just empty. And that was a big realization for her. So this is a very um, uh, important uh, area here between the, as the dream and the dreamless sleeper playing with each other. And then if you allow the dream to dissolve into dreamless sleep, or if you just become lucid in dreamless sleep, or if you stay lucid from waking to sleep and the waking world vanishes, it's very important to know that at first it's going to seem like there's literally nothing there. No objects are going to appear to you. And our minds are so accustomed to looking for things that immediately the mind wants to go look for something. It doesn't want to just stay with nothing. And if it goes to look for something, it'll probably find a dream. It'll probably create a dream. It'll seem like it found a dream. It'll go stumble into a dream or whatever. It's important here not to let the mind wander around looking for something. Just stay in that nothingness. Just stay there. As Ananda Moyamaya, she was a great mystic of, a Hindu mystic of this century, she says, where nothing is, there is everything. All efforts are for the sake of this realization. And it's this space in dreamless sleep where this is the most obvious. This is real 
uh, total nothing. And then when you wake up from any of these experiences, being loose in the dream or whatever, it's important that as you wake up to try to stay aware that the phenomena of the waking world that's arising is of the same nature as the phenomena of the dream world. And then during the day, try to become aware of that. This is how the practices of night and the practices of the day become integrated, if you like. And here's what Namakai Norbu says about this. If you concentrate a great deal during the day, imagining that you are living a dream, then during the night the dream itself will seem less real. One thus becomes aware of the true nature of both. If authentic awareness of the illusory reality arises, one arrives at the disappearance of solid reality. Realization means true understanding of the waking state and the dream state. And we might add, of your self. Because you are not some finite entity limited being among other finite entities, limited beings, objects, and whatnot. You are that pure, infinite, indestructible consciousness that underlies all of this. Our dreams, our waking experience, everything. And that is the realization of your true identity, who you really are. That is enlightenment. That is Gnosis. That is awakening. So are there any questions? Yeah. I realize um, I had an important event happen two days ago, I think it was now. Um, when we flew back from Hawaii, we, we did a, an all-nighter, so we kind of missed a night's sleep. And when we got home, we slept for 12 hours straight. <laughs> and when I woke up, I didn't know where I was. There was that, that space between sleep and wake. So there was the thought, I don't know where I am. And this inner voice arose effortlessly saying, there is no other place. There is no other time. There is no other one. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And my mind sort of looked at that for a while, and then there was probably some analysis going on, and then I kind of woke up and wondered where that came from. But I still remember that clearly experiencing that from a place of non-analysis. This is um, a very good example of what we talked about last Sunday, how uh, teachings can manifest in, mm -hmm. through dreams, and in this case, it's not even through a dream. It's just directly out of the dreamless sleep state. I told a story last week about uh, Tom McFarlane having Dr. Wolf's voice yeah, boom out. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. And if you, you can think of this as your inner teacher, your archetypal teacher, instructing you. Just as, mm -hmm. by the way, I got that instruction in dreamless sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, before uh, wake, wakingness vanishes and uh, dreams arrive, being is revealed. The, the one thing that you might have wanted to do, or if it happens again, instead of analyzing and saying, oh, wow, where did that come from? Follow the instruction. Look directly, because that instruction is showing you the truth right there. 
there is no other is what it was telling you. Right, no exactly. No, that's beautiful. That, and look, this is such a direct teaching just for you at that moment. Mm -hmm. But next time, don't think about it. <laughs> just look. Yeah. It's an instruction to look. If you, I mean, look is too strong here. I mean, it's metaphorically. There's, you know, it's not a visual looking, but it's to realize. Just realize. Wonder how you put that analytical mind on hold and just. Well, part of uh, practicing uh, what a spiritual path does is to put it on hold. It brings you to a place where it's either can't think up anything more to do, or, as Andrea's experience, it becomes so content it doesn't want to. So, but um, that's a very, uh, just a startling example of the importance of the night for spiritual practice. It's uh, really excellent. And for going to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> oh, notice something else. You were exhausted. Yes. <clears throat> spiritual path exhausts you. And it can be a physical, Seeking mental... Seeking happiness is exhausting. Yes, it is. Well, all life ultimately exhausts you, yes. And when you give up, at a moment when you give up, for one reason or another, that seeking, then this is where the, these opportunities arise. You know. Yes, Dawn, first. Um, I was just remembering, too, as you were talking, I had an experience about a month ago. And I was, go I was um, ready to go to sleep, and I um, decided to try meditating and see what happened. I wasn't looking for lucid. I wasn't looking for anything specific. I was just, I, it just popped into my mind to try that. And what happened was I found myself um, in this just real alert state. And, and I thought, well, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to go to sleep. And uh, then I remembered, I, I remembered Andrea saying when she went to sleep after she had wakened, she, and I have my notes here, when she went to sleep, something about the body lay down. And she said, I have this awareness that can't go anywhere, that the body needed to lay down. And then she said something about her awareness went into a tunnel of darkness, into a void. And I, I remembered at that time, here I was in this real alert state, and I remembered her saying that. I remember, didn't remember exactly what she said, but I told myself that I wasn't enlightened, and I was tired and needed to sleep, so I stopped the process so that I could go to sleep. But I'm just wondering what... What might have actually come if I had stayed with that? Well, meditative. one of the fears is that, uh, especially for a householder, that if I do this practice, I'm staying lucid, I'll just be exhausted in the morning. That turns out not to really be true. Often, actually, you can feel twice as refreshed because uh, if you're, especially in dreamless sleep, there's no tension at all. And if you're lucid in your dreams... Uh, you're not suffering, and they're not a problem. You're not using up all that energy, you know, dealing with all that. So you can actually, it can be much more restful kind of sleep if you're lucid. Now, again, if you're concentrating and you're not dreaming or you're not falling asleep, that means you're concentrating too hard, and then you won't get any sleep. So that you back off, but try to back off just enough so that you still have a little bit of concentration left, but you can actually fall asleep. This is just the area I was talking about before playing with, not too tight, not too loose. It doesn't have to be a choice. Either I do this practice or fall asleep, but experiment with a little bit and see if you can find that place where there's just enough to 
keep the lucidity going, but doesn't keep you awake. I had this interesting dream um, where there were these people that were like bigger than life, and there was one was surrounded by blue, and the other was surrounded by white. And I had the sensation that they were trying to get me. And for some reason, I'm usually not very lucid in dreams. I just let them go. But um, I turned around and I said to them, you're not real. You're not real. And as I said that, they began to shrink. And they shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until they just boop, di disappeared in like a little puff of blue. <laughs> well, that's an example of becoming lucid in a dream. And that's a little bit more like Todd's dream. Your recognition that they weren't real transformed something threatening into something that was nothing, which is symbolically what happens. If you'd been a little bit more uh, mindful at that point, you wouldn't have necessarily wanted them to go away. You wanted to study that phenomena, that here these... They're in front of you, and yet they aren't real. That's the trick of realizing emptiness. It's not to make things go away. It's to, it's to be there with them and realize it's just an appearance. So if that happens again, try to adjust it a little bit. But that's, that is a good, perfect example of becoming lucid in a dream and then being able to work with that. Yes, yeah, Sheila. I once had a, a dream while I was awake that was very real. I was filing and he, that's sort of a mindless task. And so I went into a dream state where I really thought I was in this dream in someplace in China or someplace and on a real noisy street where it was, you know, cooking smells I could smell. Mm. And I was a Chinese woman. And it was an instant, but it was a life. It was like a whole life. Oh, that's very interesting. First, it's very interesting to have uh, dreams in the waking state. This is what visions are. Mystics have visions. They're nothing but dreams in a waking state. And, you know, the more you do this practice, any kind of spiritual practice, the more the um, divide between these various realms of experience breaks down. This is why mystics have visions and so forth. Do you know what I mean? Because it's all manifestations of consciousness. We compartmentalize in our normal diluted state rigidly and we mark these things off and assign values to them and whatnot. But as you do practice, you more and more identified with that underlying consciousness and then things get much more fluid for you. So that's just the phenomena is not uncommon. And this is when you read about mystics having visions, that's, you know, that's what that is. Now, but this is very interesting of what sort of vision you had and the circumstances. You were doing filing, a boring routine task, so your mind is relaxed there. You could have various interpretations of that. One is, um, you know, that this was some vision that meant something to you. But the way you described it, and this is just a pure intuitive feeling about this now, especially with the smells. How many people dream smells? I don't think, maybe once or twice I've dreamed smell. You have dreamed smell. It's rare. And noises. And noises. And that sort of snapshot, slice of life that tells you whole life. It's possible that 
either two things are happening here. Maybe there is some sort of past life experience bubbling up, or maybe you are tapping into someone's experience right now. That was probably more like it. It felt very here and now. It didn't. I've never had a sense of past life. It felt like something simultaneous, and I thought of it as my other life for that moment. Well, we are all <laughs> each other's lives. There is no other, as uh, her teacher rightly told her. Uh, Jung uh, noticed this. He said, um, working with his patients, he would occasionally have dreams that he would feel were his patients' dreams, that he was dreaming their dreams. And when I've done dream workshops occasionally, people will start dreaming each other's symbols. So somebody will be dreaming about, I don't know, a cat, and three or four times they'll come, they'll have the cat. And then the fourth time, somebody will show up and say, I dreamed about your cat last night. <laughs> and... But something quite startling happened to Jennifer and I the other night. We were sleeping, and I was dreaming about uh, solving some problem in a big office building. It was like a glass and concrete skyscraper, and I was way up on, you know, I don't know, 20th floor or whatever, towards the top, and there was some sort of command room. But it was just a rather mundane problem. I don't even remember what it was. Nothing spectacular. And I woke up, and I had to go to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom, and I came back, and I went back to sleep, and I went back into the same dream. And then we started noticing, or there's some reports or whatever, that the bears were arriving. And I think you could see on video monitors, you know, these bears coming up outside the building, just streaming up from all over in all directions. There were little steps coming up, this big plaza. And they were definitely Kodiak bears. That was known in the dream. These are Kodiak bears. And at one point, I went down to the lower <laughs> lobby, and the, the bears were very single-minded. They weren't hostile or anything, but they'd push right by you. They were trying to go someplace. And, you know, I tried to pet some of them and all that, and they weren't interested in that. They were just just streaming in this building. And then we thought, well, you know, we got to do something about this. And then I went back upstairs working on this problem, and then uh, the reports came. They, they got to the second floor and the third floor, and I went down again, and they're coming up through the exit, the stairwells, and this and that. And finally, we turned this over. There was some guy there was in charge of security, and he, he was going to fix it, and we went on with our work. But it, it was so strange that the bears had absolutely nothing to do with what was the rest of the dream was about. And then I woke up in the morning, and then... Jennifer was telling me she the night before she had had a dream where some bears came and she bopped them. And she was sorry she bopped them in the dream, so she was trying to call the bears back. So when I woke up to go to the bathroom, she woke up and she remembered this. She went to sleep dreaming what? Salmon and blueberries? Salmon and blueberries to attract the bears. But the bears came to my dream. <laughs> Hundreds of them. <laughs> and later we found out uh, she wasn't sure whether the bears like salmon, but we read, uh, we looked up in the encyclopedia, Kodiak bears particularly love salmon. And these were Kodiak bears. So when we put our dreams together, it was, you know, as Jennifer said, it was right bed, wrong head. <laughs> and tell me, next time the dreams come, send them over to me. <laughs> That's a, a fun you know, kind of story, but it illustrates how these things can happen. You know, the, the boundaries between myself and yourself and stuff start to break down.
And uh, I would not be surprised if, I don't know how you could ever verify it, but that you actually had, you know, cross connections with somebody in Hong Kong or wherever, you know, Singapore, I don't know. Well, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, when I was uh, married, um, my ex-husband and I had the same dream one night. And really? Dreamed, it was a very unpleasant dream. <laughs> we, I had a cat, and we, we dreamed that she her collar had got caught in a bush, and she was hanging by her neck. And then that subsequently happened. Ah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, it, it happened. Fortunately, when we were there, we were able to help right. her out of the bush. Well, again, last uh, Sunday I talked about this. You can have prophetic dreams. Yeah, and, I had a number yeah. of them. And, uh, but the fact that your husband and you did uh, yeah, dream the same, the same dream again. Dream. Let's not get too carried away by the fascination of these phenomena, however. This is important on a spiritual path. These things will happen, and uh, you know they are startling and sometimes fun and uh, whatnot. But we don't want to ever take our eye off the goal. And the goal is liberation, ultimately. The goal is to find out who you truly are. And the, the fireworks along the way, some people happens to more than others. If it's not happening to you, don't be disappointed. But uh, it is important to keep our eye on the goal here. It has been a long morning, so let's bring the formal part of it to a close. And as Mike said, you're welcome to stay and have some tea and chat. Check out the library. And until we see you again, peace to you all.